0: This is Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, a project sponsored by Cybermouse Multimedia, bringing you free podcasts to download or listen to live online on your favorite podcast player, iTunes, Stitcher.com, SoundCloud, or just Google us, and you will find us everywhere. Enjoy. Red Stripe Candy by Bill Allerton "'Libby!' "'Verna Morel occupies the corner by the slattered French window, "'like a jewelled ornament shrouded in black lace. "'When she speaks, only her lips move, "'only her breath scatters motes in the bracketed light. "'Come in, Miss Verna!' "'Libby's voice carries in from the kitchen on a wave of cooking smells.' "'There's cabbage and all kinds of green stuff "'cut fresh from a garden now hemmed by weeds "'and brought closer to the house by each season. "'Hey, Libby! "'Yes, Miss Vernon. "'Libby, it's almost two o'clock. "'Coming, Miss Vernon. "'The clock in the hall starts its groan "'as Libby pulls herself through from the kitchen.' In the drawing-room, each piece of furniture waits to fall under her familiar hand. Better than kin, she would always say. At least you know where it stands. Libby breaks the wheels on Miss Verner's chair with a foot she could hardly see for the swelling in her ankles. She straightens the bright-flowered print of her frock with one hand, and with the other she pushes back a stray lock of hair and wipes the pain from her face. Now then, Miss Verna, what do you want to see to-day? The train, Libby, the train. Just whole milk run, Miss Verna. Tain't nothing special. Verna remains silent her eyes fixed on the slats of the right-hand shutter where it hangs, waiting for the years in Libby's gnarled and broken hands to shake the rust from the hinges. "'If I opens to the side, perhaps we'll see the Reverend and his pretty wife in a new car.' "'You knows they always wave, and all the way her face lights up a dull day.' Like his sister, you say, back in thirty-four, but Abby would have been about thirty then, and this one came in no oh, more than, oh, twenty-three or so, and her with them two kids running round like peas in a pot. Further's gaze remains fixed on the right-hand shutter. If she sits perfectly still, like a dark butterfly, resting, all folded wings and withdrawn, "'inwardly-directed senses. Then, at two o'clock each day, "'between mid-May and August, "'on days when the sky is open and wide, "'not closed and shuttered and dark "'with clouds like this room in which she sits, "'the sun will chip sparks "'from the gold on her fingers "'and shimmer the inlaid silver and mother-of-pearl "'around her throat. "'Her head will lean forwards AND A LITTLE TO ONE SIDE, AND SHE WILL SMILE HER ONLY SMILE, in the shadow of Libby's relentless chatter. And when the clock strikes we could watch it shower the old town with doves, and some of them dirty grey pigeons they seem to take up with can't say I like grey was grey the day I buried my daddy was grey the day I got the letter saying my Joseph weren't never coming back and it's grey when I look in the mirror and the pain some people say pain's red, but I tell you it ain't so pain's grey. The train, Libby. "'Yes, ma'am, Miss Verner. "'Can't help but see the church whichever way I look, Libby. "'Yes, ma'am, Miss Verner. "'The train is. "'Choo, choo. "'Shut up, Libby. "'Yes, ma'am, Miss Verner.' outside the French windows. The air falls still, like the world holding its breath and waiting for summer to steal in unannounced, the ground barely dry from last night's shower. Beyond a quarter acre of grass stands a row of tall cypress trees, their flame-shapes casting fine filigreed shadows over the lawn. Hemmings. "'planted the trees in his thirtieth year, "'so that Miss Verner didn't have to see the way "'that the houses and sheds and streets and the bus station "'had crept steadily up towards the old house. "'As the town grew, the trees stretched up and wide, "'as if conspiring to keep the worst of the days from her. "'Now they filter the street noises from the air,' And when the wind blows, they bend with an old-fashioned grace to protect the shingle roof. Seen from beyond the hedge, the house is enigmatic, something of an anachronism. It looms like an elder sister over the small white clapboard church at the bottom of the drive, as though they are locked. Religion just a curve away from tradition a slow crunch of gravel apart. Werner understands that journey almost as well as she understands herself. It feels like yesterday, but it's a journey she hasn't made in 25 years. To the right of the church, over by a street of low, black-pitch-roof garages and kiosks, stands the station. Its gable roof is cantered so high above the tracks that on hot days the sun slides around and under it so that it's mostly no use at all. The broad, white, gingerbread fascias were once lovingly repainted every two years by Jackson, the retired engine-driver come station-master, porter, painter, well, almost anything that needed doing but now his broken ladder frames the flowers that grow in a twenty-foot bed behind the platform. From the office window, Jackson can see the old house, and although from his chair he can't see her, not like forty years or so ago when he could have counted the birds in the hedgerow and admired the slim brown stretch of Miss Libby's legs as she tidied the garden, he can still imagine that Miss Verna punctual as ever, is sitting behind one shutter and peering out to the other where it swings wide on the world. he had once asked her why she didn't just throw them both open and have done. "'Too much world at once, Mr. Jackson,' she had said. "'I don't think I was made for that much world at once.' She never had called him to the house again and sometimes it felt as though he'd just sat back to watch the dust settle on and around her. From the side of a rail, baking in the early summer heat, a flake of rust falls into the gravel bed. The iron sings softly to itself, and the station cat opens one slow, haunted eye. Jackson takes a last look up the hill, towards Miss Verna, in her chair, in her prison, in her own time. Around him, the station waits, open-mouthed, dust settling quietly on its fifteen-year-old paintwork. Say, Libby. Yes, am um? I was just minded of red-stripe candy. Now there's a thing. Verna scowls at the implied sarcasm. The train's late. No, ma'am. Clock's fast. Church ain't struck yet. Verna listens lightly for the urgent throb of the diesel engine entering the ravine, her thoughts running barefoot. Red-stripe candy. Yes, um? The breeches boys, I swear they smelled of red-striped candy. You remember? The kind that's all spirals of white and red and peppermint taste and bent at the end like a walking stick. I could smell it for hours after they're gone. She sniffs the air sharply. There, still a trace, just a trace, though. It's fading now. Can't you smell it, Libby? No, ma'am. I sure can't. And them boys haven't been here in years. Libby, they were here just the other day. No, ma'am. Sure as I'm here. You're getting old, Libby. Sure am, Miss Verner, from hauling you around in that damn chair. How familiar. Libby's remark passes across Verner's thoughts like a dark hand. She's felt old for almost as long as she can remember, except for that one time. And that one time had made the scar that left her in this chair and waiting for a darker comfort. Libby! Here's Miss Vernon. My best shawl. Company coming? Don't know, Libby. I just know I need my best shawl. Libby negotiates the furniture to the hallway. From there, she sits at the bottom of the stairs, and shuffles her way up one step, at a time from behind the closed left shutter werner's eyes pierce the distance until they blur upon the open mouth of the station the church clock hangs at a few minutes to two the chimes of the hall clock are five long minutes gone pushed by silence into the all too easily forgotten past Libby pauses at the top of the stairs to catch her breath and allow the pounding in her body to subside. Through the silence of the house, she listens to the drum of occluded arteries in her head. Hemmings is outside, Tidying the kitchen garden, stoking the mulch back around the cabbages where Libby used to stump between the rows, looking for the best of the early ones. The afternoon sun is warm on his back, easing tomorrow's pain from his muscles. As he works his way along the side of the house to where the garden is edged by lawn, he stops to light his pipe. Earlier that morning... The wind had sighed gently through the cypress trees, trimming their leaves towards the house, trapping within themselves the sounds of cars and children and the clang and shut of businesses that are kept at bay by the sheer presence of the old house. But now there is silence. The air is still, as if the world and its neighbour are on vacation and he alone is left with a chance to relax and edge the lawn in peace without the sounds of dogs barking or the smell of barbecue grease clinging to his summer shirt. Enjoying the moment, Hemmings sits by the edge of the lawn, pipe warm in his cupped hands, the uneven charcoal rim dark against the slow fire of his memory. upstairs. Libby lifts Miss Verner's best shawl to her face, and breathes in through the black Parisian lace. It holds a faint but pervasive scent of peppermint. It lingers in her mind as she stretches the cloth over her fingers to rub at the coarseness of its weave with her thumb, feeling the patterns under her skin, and experiencing the darkness within the folds. "'Going down the stairs will be easier "'with lungs that don't ache "'and a chest that doesn't pound "'and a head that is more silent than hers right now. "'So she sits on the edge of the bed for a while, "'enveloped in a peppermint scent from the shawl. "'The church clock strikes a knell.' (laughs) until the warmth of the mid-afternoon. Doves it out from the belfry louvers and settle with the grace of confetti on the surrounding outhouse roofs. Miss Verner watches them dispassionately from a corner of her eye while she times the coming of the second knell with precision. The clapboard sides and the quarter-paned windows of the house take the sound with an easy grace. "'It's late, Libby!' Libby is taking the stairs one step at a time. The shawl thrown across her shoulders and shaming the crystal grey in her hair. Werner's eyes never waver from the gaping mouth of the station roof. Libby! Libby! Where is that girl? Libby stumps from the hat rack to the calling card table by the hall door. "'Pray tell, where should I be, Miss Verner?' "'Right here, by me, where you belong.' "'Libby drapes the shawl across Miss Verner's shoulder, "'adjusting the length against the chair back. "'I swear some days I don't know who belongs where or what, "'cept I wouldn't care if only these legs belonged to someone else, "'cept I can't think of anybody I hates that much, "'cept, well, shut up, Libby.' "'Yes, ma'am, Miss Verner.' "'The train's late, Libby.' "'Yes, ma'am, Miss Vernon The room shakes to the gentle thunder of a train travelling the ravine that separates the house from the suburban sprawl to the east. Miss Vernon nods satisfactorily, as if the coming of the train has turned a chapter in her book, or maybe marked the ever-shortening calendar in her head. Out by the mulch Hemmings coughs in a sudden pall of dark smoke that billows up from the divide. He hears the throttle eased as the train sneeze to a halt in the station. Jackson jumped up with a bound he had lately thought beyond all expectation. The cat cowers beneath a trolley, away from the shooting, reaching, twisting steam and the hiss and sudden heat of hot black iron. Jackson closes his eyes to sniff the air. It's a steamer, all right. A 462 Pacific on a high-slung frame with superheat and double-acting cylinders, just like the one that finished his days and still screams its way through his dreams of a night. But what the hell is it doing here in all its black-spit and brass-polished glory? The engine is magnificent, so far beyond human scale and yet monstrously alive. The driving wheels are wider than Jackson can span with both arms, and in the places where they have met the steel rails, they're polished with a sheen of a thousand thousand miles. The footplate is empty. He steps up. His lungs filled with the scent of tar bubbling from the seams in the swelling coals where they stir, bursting fire and flame under the boiler. He climbs back down to the platform where the taste of hot grease oozing from the axle boxes and brake trunnions is a tangible thing. He takes a breath of steam and feels it invade his tissue like the first faint tang of peppermint. Behind the night black of the engine, the silent carriages shimmer mid-brown in the sunlight. A gold inlay runs at waist height on a line through the handles. On tiptoe, Jackson peers through the first window. It is dark inside, and at first seems empty, but as he looks he thinks to see movement, then dismisses it as steam wisps the glass. Along the platform, he hears the snick of a brass coach-handle. A door swings wide to show rich leather upholstery. A man steps down beside the track. He speaks quietly and with the ease of familiarity. Hello, Roy. Libby. "'Takes the chair by Miss Verner "'and curves her spine against the high back. "'Verner sits watching the station mouth "'spill and overflow with cotton candy clouds. "'Say, Libby, is the station a-fire?' "'Cain't say for sure, Miss Verner. "'I believe it might be. "'Look, there's Jackson coming up the hill. "'Who's the young man with him?' can not say, Miss Verner.' Your eye's better than mine. You've been saving yours and using mine for years. Now, Libby. Yes, ma'am, Miss Vernon. Roy Jackson takes the first fifty feet of the hill with a deceptive ease but he stops there to shake the hand of a smartly-dressed young man and to wave him on up to the old house. The man takes the next fifty yards before he begins to slow. Roy notices the left leg take on a cautious swing that turns gradually into a well-defined limp as he walks on. Twitching forward as the man stumbles... Roy relaxes again, as he rights himself and carries on up the hill, a little more stooped now than before. Past the halfway mark, the man pauses to push something into a hedge hedgerow that hems the drive. Unable to see what it was, Roy turns around and walks back to the station. Libby, he's coming here. Nah, he's probably calling to the church. Looked like a preacher in that there high collar. No, look, he's already past the church, but the hill's taking its toll. Such a shame, He set off so well and all. Strikes me a little unsteady on his feet, Miss Verner. Probably a liquor salesman. You know Jackson wouldn't send a liquor salesman up here. Libby leans forward to rub at the corner of a glass pane. "'Well, he's coming here, whoever he is. "'Look kind of old, though, to be coming up the hill in this heat.' Between intakes of breath, Werner hears the slow, unsteady crunch of gravel as the man passes around the front of the house to the porch at the rear. The doorbell rings. Livy, get the door. Hurry, girl!' The furniture waits patiently as Libby patterns her way back into the hall. Verna hears the door being swung wide and a warm swath of minted summer air finds her where she sits behind the half-shutter. Libby returns, carrying a small silver salver from the card-table in the hall. In her other hand is a gnarled walking-stick that begins... But a brown swirl of her fingers leaves off. Can't say I remember folks still did this. Can't say tain't nothing but a joke anyway. What is it, Libby? Bring it here to the light. Libby is visibly trembling. Can't say you should trouble yourself. She drops a stick on the floor with a jarring clatter. Bring it here, girl. No, ma'am, Miss Verner. Bring it. Here's ma'am, Miss Verner verner plucks the card from the tray and turns it over onto her own hand it drops into her lap as if it was iced and the merest touch of her skin had melted and slid it out of her grasp livy what kind of a joke is this tain't none what i'd call funny miss verner verner studies the card hoping for some mistake but there it lay edged in gold with a kind of wavy trim and small fancy holes punched in around the edges through which an enterprising young girl might thread a ribbon, a ribbon that she had shaken loose from her hair, one early summer day, like the one outside. "'Send him away!' "'She can't do that, Werner. I just plain won't go.' Verna turns her head, slowly, at the remembered richness of a man's voice, then quickly away again before she can see his face. And I say she can! Libby is standing behind Miss Verna's chair, staring fixedly out of the window as if she is afraid to look at the old man stooped by the doorway. If Miss Verna says I can, then, mister, you better. And who's going to pull you out of the pond this time, Livy? all shaking, wet and mixing with tears? And who's going to lift you down from the orchard after Miss Verna done got you stuck up there again, chasing for moon-sized apples? Livy is shaking like she was still stood on that high wall, the tremor of her hands fluttering the black of the shawl as they haul to the chair. Don't you say those things, you hear me? Just don't you say them. Verna turns her face back to the window. You should listen to the girl, Richard. There's no cause for you to find us again at this end of our lives. It was better you hadn't come. Do you know what a circle is, Verna? It's a twist of rope that's full of beginnings because it has no end, and so what else could it be made of? Verna sits, stony-faced. You broke our circle and you broke me and you broke this blasted hip and you took away my dancing shoes and my candles and music and nights without pain and summer grasses running wild under my feet and just, just go away. She closes her eyes. I wish you away. If all you could do after 70 years is talk in circles. "'The old man follows Livy's path through the drawing-room. "'He catches her looking and smiles. "'She turns away from him back to the view outside the window. "'Life's a circle, Werner. "'Have you looked in my mirror lately, Richard? "'This is what I look like at the end, "'and I sure as hell don't need reminded.' "'This isn't the end, Werner. "'I'm here to show you how to begin.' A fine time, I'm sure. Libby, get the door. The gentleman is leaving. Look, nothing has to end, Verna. Richard hauls a hand out into the air between them. There are so many beginnings if we just reach out and take them. They're like orchard apples on a fall day. They're everywhere you look. On the floor, in the air, hung around every which way in between. You just Pick the one that takes your fancy and bite right in. And if that don't work out or a worm beat you to it, you find a better one and try again. And where was my beginning, Richard? Did I begin to dance again? Did I begin with gentlemen by the rack and my tray full of gilt-edged cards? Did I begin to forgive you for spooking my buggy with that damned automobile? Oh, you began all right, Werner. You began to suck in all that was sour and bitter and lost in the world. You began to close in on yourself and the people around you until we felt we were nothing compared to your pain. You began to end. You bit that apple. Worm and all, and you never threw anything away. It's all still there, stuffed like a cushion beneath you so you can sit there in your own shadow and brood about all the things that ended, just so you don't have to look up and see all these beginnings hanging in the air around you. Oh yes, you began all right. If I ever began, Richard, it ended the day I sent you away. "'And now I'm here to show you how to start again, Werner. "'I'm sorry, Richard, but my end is close upon me "'and your fine talk won't stop me or any of us "'from reaching it one way or another. "'Come with me, Werner. "'You too, Libby. "'You can't take Miss Werner nowhere. "'Just look at you. "'You can't hardly stand, let alone wheel this chair, "'and I ain't been the length of that drive in years.' Trust me, Libby. Verna, will you come? Can't say that I will, Richard. What Libby says is true. Besides, this house is world enough for me and I don't trust outside. It's too sharp and too wide. Listen to me, Verna. Between us, Libby and myself, we can move the chair. Here, Libby, help me turn it around. Libby is wild-eyed and shaking. Her fingers are fluttering Verna's shawl until the whole room reeks of peppermint. Come on, girl, help me. Libby, don't you lift a finger. Verna grasps the wheels of the chair firmly. And pray who's going to push me back up the hill when you two fools are playing war out and fit for nothing. Trust me, Verna. You won't need to come back. This is a beginning, remember? What foolishness is this, Richard? It's not foolishness, Werner. It's a beginning. And where will it end this time, Richard? In a fool's tears again? That's up to you, Werner. It's your beginning. And you've come all this time back to ask me to be a fool? They say there's no fool like an old one. So start by acting your age. Come on, Libby, help push this damn chair. Libby folds the shawl over Miss Verner's hands and takes up one side of the handles. Between them, they steer the chair along Libby's path through the drawing room and into the hall. As they pass the card table, Verner drops the calling card onto the bare wood. I may choose to consider it later. Between them, Richard and Libby tilt the chair across the threshold until they're clear of the porch. Verna turns around in the chair. Libby, the door. Richard pushes hard on the handle and the wheels begin to roll. Leave it, Libby. Doors are for opening, not shutting. The chair is hard to push on the gravel. But by the time they reach the front of the house, Libby has stopped shaking and is beginning to put some weight behind her side of the handle. They pause for a moment at the top of the drive just to watch it curve away towards the church. Verna pulls the shawl around her. So much world, so many moon apples. She looks up as Richard speaks, then allows her gaze to follow the continuing sweep of the drive to where the station sits with white clouds spewing out from under the gables. Well, I may as well begin by being a fool. I've been most of the things. Libby! Hold tight, girl! The chair slowly gathers speed down the drive. Richard and Libby hold it from running away as Vernus sits, stony-faced and rigid, half afraid. Hold on a minute. Richard digs in a heel and applies the brake. The chair halts not twenty yards from the house. Libby is panting. It's all right, Mr. Richard, I'm OK. In fact, my head's never been this quiet for as long as I remember. As they set off again, she notices that Richard's stoop has gone. Twenty yards further, and she sees Miss Verna's shawl becoming pale and grey like the clock pigeons, and that Mr. Richard is standing straighter, and his limp is now just as sometimes stumble, and that the air is warmer than it had been inside the house, and that it still tasted like peppermint. Verna's face is less lined now, but still immobile. The black, fingerless lace gloves are now white and lay in her dark lap like a snowfall. By the time they're near the church, Verna has her eyes closed and is showing the first faint trace of a smile. "'How are your beginnings now, Vernon? "'Fine, Mr. Claybrook, foolishly fine.' "'A few feet beyond the church, Vernon asks them to stop. "'I think I might walk a step.' "'Then you'll be needing these.' "'Richard pushes his hands into the hedgerow beside them "'and pulls out a handful of carmine, satin and ribbon. "'My shoes, my dancing shoes!' Mr. Claver, for a gentleman, you sure have a seductive way about you. So you've begun to notice? Verna smiles openly at him. Libby, help me put them on. Libby kneels down to take off Miss Verna's slippers, before realising what she has done. She signs a cross over her breast, and admires the supple softness of her own knees as she laces and ties the ribbons as Verna stands up from the chair. The darkness slips from her clothes, leaving her bright and cautiously uncertain in the sunlight. She takes a step, wary at first, then one more. Suddenly, she skips. She stops herself and turns to laugh at Richard, but the old man is gone. The young man who stands there smiles down at her. Don't stop now, Verna. You've only just begun. Begun what, Richard? It doesn't matter, Verna. It's just the beginning. He jumps up, arms outstretched. Look, there's another. And there, catch them on a breeze. Take them on a wing. They're all yours. He links his arm through hers. Come on, we're late. Libby. Tags on behind, collecting summer flowers that pale against the print of her frock as Richard hurries them down to the station. Roy Jackson is waiting by the platform. Ah, Miss Verna, Mister Claver. Baby hangs behind Verna and Richard a flush taking her cheeks. She can't remember a time when Roy was ever quite so handsome. Hello, Roy. Why, hello, Miss Libby. I can't tell you what a pleasure this is, and on such a fine day. Beside them, the engine seethes in the heat of the afternoon. Steam escapes the pressure dome on top of the boiler and blasts open, swirling into the shade of the gable roof from where it appears again, swelling out like young clouds percolating through the gingerbread fascias. Verna pays the engine no more than a cursory glance. I thought it was a fire. Richard steers her away towards the first carriage. We're almost ready now, Roy. Sure thing, Mr. Richard. Roy steps up to the footplate, then stops to admire a show of long, slender legs. See you later, Miss Libby. You may be sure that I will give it great consideration, Mr. Jackson. Richard hands Libby up onto the train, then turns to Verner, almost forgot, I brought you this from the inside pocket of his coat he offers her something slim and cellophaned with a golden ribbon around one end. Verner snatches it from him with glee. Why, Mr. Claver, red stripe candy, my very favourite Richard lifts her into the carriage before staring back along the track. The engine that will take them onwards is as black as the absence of all light but the blaze from the open firebox lights the mist of steam and the underside of the faded roof with a hopeful glow Mr Jackson Roy's hand lifts from the cabin reply Richard acknowledges it with an uncertain nod I think we are ready Hemmings wanders up the little side track by the church to find the old wheelchair unaccountably discarded in the drive. Without thinking too hard, he pushes it up towards the house. At the porch, he finds the door swinging wide, but the house empty and full of nothing but its own echoes as usual. Nothing seems to have been disturbed, and nothing seems to be missing. In fact, Nothing much else except for a strong scent of peppermint. He steers the chair through to the lounge and sets it behind the half-open shutter, beside Libby's old grey-dusty high backed carver chair, where it always was. From a lingering sense of loyalty, he winds the old clock in the hall, then locks the door behind him to sit out on the bottom step. His eyes close, and his ears open to the day filtering through the trees. The pipe is soon warm in his hand. He pushes his heels out into the gravel of the drive, leans his back against the porch column, and waits for his son to return. But Vietnam is nigh forty years gone now. He shrugs and tamps the pipe with his tobacco knife. And it's not wise to fill your house with too many ghosts. You've just been listening to another excellent podcast from Urban Tiger Radio, sponsored by Cybermouse Multimedia, If you've enjoyed what you've heard, don't forget to click the little heart button on your way out and let everyone else know that you like it. So, once again, that's a goodbye from me and a... ...from now. Bye.